Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hardtack Military History Podcast. I am your host, Mike, and as always, I have my friend and co-host Sam with me today. How's it going, Sam? Yeah, not bad. Uh, I'm pretty tired. Had a busy week. How about you? (laughs) Just about the same. Um, We've talked about it. It's been hectic. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But excited for this episode, so uh, we'll go ahead and get into it. Sam, uh, go ahead and kick us off. Hardtack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is advised. We do not claim to be experts in any of the topics discussed. The opinions and analysis expressed are that of the participants alone. Now put on your Kevlar, secure your lickies and chewies, and prepare to take cover for this episode of Hardtack. housekeeping if you'd like to continue or add to the discussion from this episode or any of our previous episodes you can do so on the hardtack facebook twitter or instagram all listed on our link tree in the episode description alternatively you can email us at hardtackpod at gmail.com with comments questions or suggestions for future episodes please take the time to leave us a review and don't forget to hit that subscribe button In this week's episode, we're going to take a trip 104 years into the past and visit the once chaotic and war-torn nation of Armenia. I do want to mention that this particular battle was difficult to research. Many of the best sources on this battle are written in Turkish and translations are not so readily available. For that reason, much of that information comes from Western sources, though there were some great Eastern sources available as well, which we list in the episode description. The Republic of Armenia is a landlocked nation centered between modern-day Turkey to the west, Georgia to the north, Azerbaijan to the east, and Iran to the south. Its borders are just out of reach of the Black and Caspian Seas, which lie to its west and east. Modern Armenia is made up of over 98% ethnic Armenians. Their primary religion is Christianity under the Armenian Apostolic Church, and their government is just one of many unitary parliamentary republics. Armenia's landmass is about 11.5 thousand square miles, or almost 30,000 square kilometers for Sam and all you over there in Australia, and their estimated population as of this year, 2022, is 3 million. Though this paints a modern and established national picture, Armenia was not always the sovereign and self-governing nation it is today. It took years of resistance against foreign rule dating back to ancient times, and even genocide at the hands of the Ottoman Empire before true independence was won. You are listening to Hardtack Episode 17, Battle of Sardarabad, Birth of a Nation. The Battle of Sardarabad was part of the larger Caucasus campaign of World War I. The Ottoman Empire was and remained the primary aggressor in the Caucasus. They were the one constant belligerent in the campaign. The campaign spanned four years from October 1914 until October 1918, nearly the entire duration of World War I. Though it was largely fought on the ground, there were notable naval engagements that took place to the west of Armenia and the Black Sea. When action first broke out in the Caucasus, Armenia found itself caught in the middle between Russia and the Ottoman Empire. For the Ottomans, regaining territory lost in the Russo-Turkish War in the late 1870s 
was of the utmost importance. But what was so special about the territory? The answer is resources. Speaking of Armenia specifically, it is rich in various metal deposits to include copper, gold, zinc, lead, and silver. It also is wealthy in mineral deposits used for industrial production. WorldBank.com describes Armenia as, quote, a country rich in natural resources, particularly copper, molybdenum, gold, and dimension stones. Armenia has 27 metal mines. These mines employ 9,000 people in rural areas, while metals and gems represent over 60% of total exports. Indeed, copper ore alone accounts for over a third of all exports, end quote. Though the number of mines, the employment numbers, and export data are all modern, the information lets us know that the value of the land was not lost on the Ottomans or the Russians in the 1870s or in 1914 during the Caucasus campaign. Also of value in the region was the presence of what developed nations are addicted to and continue to fight over today, oil. Though Russia wished to maintain its territorial possessions in the region, the Caucasus front was secondary for them in comparison to the Eastern European front of World War I. Russia did not have the strongest start in World War I. We have to remember they were at odds early on with Germany and East Prussia, specifically at the Battle of Tannenberg in May 1914 and later the Battle of the Masurian Lakes. And as Sam knows, Tannenberg is a bit of a thorn in my side. I've spent the last few months writing an article on Tannenberg for publication. The final draft was finally approved and sent off to the publisher this last week, so I'm really glad to be done with that. But what I realized in researching for Sardarabad was the connection between the Caucasus campaign and Russia in East Prussia early in World War I. What I can tell you is that the Battle of Tannenberg was a disaster for Russia. The Russian 2nd Army to the south near Poland was annihilated by the German 8th Army. 2nd Army's Commander General Alexander Samsonov was dead by suicide due to his failures at Tannenberg, and 2nd Army's losses were about half their men either killed, wounded, or captured, so about 100,000, and approximately half of their field pieces were captured by the German 8th Army, about 500. Why is this important, though? First, because Russia viewed the Caucasus as secondary, they pulled about half of their men and supplies from the Caucasus front to reinforce their flagging armies in Eastern Europe after Tannenberg. Second, the practice continued. The slow siphon of essential troops from the Caucasus region to Eastern Europe occurred until 1918. What it did was give the Ottomans the upper hand in the region. Germany, their ally, kept belligerent allied forces preoccupied, and the Ottomans took full advantage. As Russia pulled out, other nations had to move in to resist Ottoman expansion, and so Armenian resistance intensified. So, so Russia had to be pretty desperate um, for the resources in Armenia if they were... I mean, eventually they slowly pulled their troops out, but they must have been desperate from the beginning if they were focused elsewhere, but also had a focus here, if you know what I mean. like. Yeah, so the, the, the Russo-Turkish War uh, took place between 1877 and 1878, and Russia came out on top during that war. And what they got in the Caucasus region, and the Caucasus region was a whole lot of territory that was rich in natural resources. So of course they wanted to hold on to that. All that metal, all that industrial material was essential to the war machine, the Russian steamroller, as, it, as it's called. So for them to abandon the Caucasus, that shows just how desperate they were in the Eastern European theater, because they knew that the Ottomans were going to swoop in and take advantage of their manpower shortages. And that's exactly what happened. As Russia and the Ottoman Empire jockeyed for position in the Caucasus, Armenia saw an opportunity. Armenian volunteer units were embedded within the Russian army the strength of which totaled out to about 150,000. And Sam, I think it's fair to say that 150,000 is a substantial size group. Armenia was clearly invested in opposing Ottoman rule. 
The Ottomans naturally were distrustful of Armenian motives and in 1915 arrested a group of Armenian intellectuals. By intellectuals we mean religious leaders, doctors, lawyers, politicians, teachers, and other professions with a heavy influence on society. What happened to these individuals ranges from deportation to murder. For those unaware, this event is often seen as the beginning of the Armenian Genocide, an event that occurred between 1915 and 1917, predominantly in Western Armenia, and resulted in an unknown number of Armenian deaths. Estimates range from over 600,000 to 1.5 million. Mass murders, death marches, and forced religions, specifically Islam, defined the genocide. So it wasn't just mass murder, it was also an attempt at eradicating the Armenian identity. Historian Hugh Strachan writes of the Armenian genocide in his book, The First World War, quote, It is impossible to say precisely how many Armenians died. Part of the problem is uncertainty as to how many were living in the Ottoman Empire in 1915 in the first place. Calculations range from 1.3 million to about 2.1 million. In terms of scale of loss, such a word, genocide, may be appropriate. Estimates approaching a million deaths are probably not wide of the mark. End quote. Strachan goes on to describe the Ottoman Empire as a backward state and explains that they had not the supply or the means of transport for large-scale deportations. This is relevant because we will see that those that escaped murder at the hands of the Ottomans filled the Armenian ranks and bolstered resistance. Later in 1917, Russia and the Ottoman Empire agreed to a ceasefire. Again, Russia was preoccupied with Germany, and the ceasefire essentially ended Russian military action in the region. However, Armenia was not willing to back down. Having suffered genocide, shaking off one potential ruler, and feeling the burning desire for independence, Armenian fighters filled in the gaps left by Russian withdrawal. It needs to be stated here that Armenia was divided between Russia and the Ottoman Empire and both belligerents conscripted Armenian fighters into their ranks. According to ArmeniaCA.org, 60,000 Armenians were conscripted by the Ottomans in World War I, another 120,000 by Russia. Armenians were fighting and killing Armenians on the behalf of two foreign oppressors. So basically, the Russians and the Ottomans had Armenian volunteers fighting each other, essentially, fighting their, their war for them. Yeah, exactly that. You know, the Ottoman Empire wanted to absorb Armenia, and under Ottoman rule, Ottoman laws applied. Mm. And we already talked about that briefly uh, just a bit ago, where even their, their religion was forced on them. Yeah. The way that the Ottoman Empire saw it was, you belong to us, why wouldn't you fight for us? Mm. For Russia, it was a little different. It was more, you're occupied, this is our land, these are our resources, we're going to use you to our benefit. Mm. You don't really have a choice kind of thing. Right. They didn't have a choice either way. What both sides did was fuel that Armenian passion and drive and desire for independence that much more. Mm. Like Russia, the Ottoman Empire also felt emboldened and so invaded Eastern Armenia and the South Caucasus in February 1918. Between February and late May, the Ottoman Third Army made gains capturing the castle of Kars, Alexandropol, and control of critical railways. The Ottoman Empire declared the formation of the Transcaucasian Federative Republic and by May of 1918 had little land left to conquer in the region. However, hundreds of thousands of Armenians were alive and had fled. Resistance was far from over. Though brief, this brings us to the Battle of Sardarabad, the outcome of which may be surprising to some. However, as monumental the impacts that the battle had on the Caucasus region, the battle itself was small in scale, in contrast to other battles fought in World War I. So let's set the chessboard. Sam? So the primary Turkish leader at the Battle of Sardarabad was Mehmet Wehi Pasha, commander of the 1st Caucasian Corps. 
Wahid Pasha was born in 1877 and graduated from the War Academy in 1900, after which he joined the Turkish Fourth Army and was stationed in Yemen. Wahid Pasha saw early success and eventually became a part of the Turkish Ministry of War. The Turkish officer fought in the Balkans and in World War I and was placed at the head of the Turkish Second Army. He was successful in the Caucasian Front and responsible for recapturing much of the territory in Armenia. Under his command at Sardarabad was the Ottoman Empire First Caucasian Corps, which was composed of the 5th, 9th, 11th and 36th Caucasian Divisions, along with approximately 2,000 Kurdish cavalry. In total, Ottoman strength fell at approximately 11,500 foot soldiers, 2,000 cavalry and only about 40 field pieces. Pretty small numbers, right? Like overall. Yeah, like I know we discussed this earlier. Um, I mean, when I initially first looked at it, I was like, that's kind of a lot. But, you know, as you told me earlier, it's like, no, that's actually quite small, especially compared to some of the other battles in World War One. Leading all Armenian forces at Sardarabad was Lieutenant General Tovmas Nazarbekian. Born in 1855, the Armenian officer took part in several wars beginning in the Russo-Turkish War in 1877, the Russo-Japanese War in 1904-1905, and obviously World War I. Spoiler alert, he survived Sardarabad and continued military service in the Armenian-Georgian War and the Armenian-Tartar War, after which he participated in Armenian-Turkish operations. So he continued participating in Armenian-Turkish operations, which means, again, spoiler alert for anyone that's going to continue to do any research, Armenian and Turkish conflict did not end with Sardarabad and Armenian independence. It continued. General Nazarbekian had about 9,000 troops between Armenian National Council militants and the Armenian Army Corps. The order of battle was a bit of a hodgepodge. Armenian forces totaling the 9,000 available troops were gathered from five infantry battalions, two cavalry units, and two vanguard regiments. Compared to Turkish forces, Armenia was at an obvious disadvantage. Again, we do need to highlight here that many of the sources on this battle are in, are in Armenian or Turkish and few have been translated. Outside of the limited information available in English, we also cannot verify for certain the accuracy of numbers or force composition. Trust me, it is frustrating to say the least. It really is. And one of the things that I found during research was that Nazarbekian actually had memoirs. So I was really excited until I found out that very few pages of his memoirs have been translated. And even worse, some of them remain unprinted. So we have this Armenian general who commanded the forces at Sardarabad, a pivotal, pivotal battle in Armenian history and in the eventual downfall of the Ottoman Empire, and it, it's not translated. I was so disappointed to find that out. So for any of the listeners, if you have any translations or know any good translated memoirs from this battle, please send us an email or leave us a comment because I, I'd like to learn more about it from the actual participants. So it hasn't officially been translated? Uh, translated? No, I I was not able to find Mm -hmm. an official translation. The only thing I found were people that were interested in the history that took the time to translate it themselves. And it was only in small chunks. Okay. Well, that's potentially a lot of history that's going unrecorded, right? Technically. Like, how how do we know that there's something in his memoirs that could change the way that we perceive the Battle of Sadarabad, you know? It's this kind of stuff that's frustrating, but also really disappointing. And the worst part was 
the memoirs exist and it's not just a translation issue. Like I said, it's been stated that a lot of it's unprinted. So his memoirs have been kept private, mm. maybe for good reason. I don't know. Uh, but there's a lot of a lot of untapped history um, from Narzabekin. Vehi Pasha's success in Armenia put the Armenian capital of Yerevan and its last standing political leaders on the brink of eradication. Turkish progress toward Yerevan was methodical and relied upon the capture of railways and roads leading to the Armenian capital. In response, General Nazarbekin played a bit of chess. He knew that he needed to reorganize his forces and reinforce his corps with Armenian volunteers. He ordered subdivisions of his available brigades to key locations, specifically on main routes leading to Yerevan near the village of Sardarabad. The placement of his small units were not intended to halt Turkish advance, but to delay it. As Arbekian's movements proved wise, the Armenians slowly retreated towards Yerevan, and in doing so, crossed the river Arax. On May 20th, with Armenian defenders safely on the left bank of the Arax, the order was given to burn all bridges. This served two purposes. First, it separated the Ottoman forces, diminishing Vehi Pasha's manpower and divided his forces' unity of effort. Secondly, it protected the outmanned Armenian army corps. With the bridges burned, the Ottomans could not safely cross the river and attack the rear of the Armenian formation. The Ottomans would have to fight without the possibility of encirclement, a flanking movement, or pincer attack to annihilate Narzabekian's army. The 108th Turkish Infantry Regiment launched the initial offensive of the Battle of Sardarabad on May 21st and found some early success. Indeed, the Ottomans enjoyed much success on the first day of the battle, and it appeared that the whole of the battle would continue in similar fashion. In the face of Armenian defensive artillery operations, the 108th forced the Armenians to fall further back, and even routed an Armenian unit of 600 infantry and some 200 cavalry at Sardarabad. After just one day, the village of Sardarabad was in Ottoman possession, along with a handful of smaller outlying villages and connecting rail stations. The situation appeared dire. Riding their early momentum, the 108th continued to press forward to Zangabasar, a town in southern Armenia in the province of Ararat. The danger for Armenian forces in losing Zangabasar was that it would force them south of a critical railway juncture which, if captured, would leave some 100,000 Armenian refugees separated from the capital city Yerevan. Already suffering a refugee crisis and holding just one major stronghold, Armenia could not handle further civilian casualties. Saving grace came from the west of Zangabasar in a village called Artashar, where an artillery battery managed to at least temporarily force Ottoman advance to a standstill. Fighting continued in small pockets on the night of the 21st, and it had become obvious to Armenian leadership that bold action was needed before the Ottomans forced a battle of attrition and ground them down to the last man. In the early morning of the 22nd, the Armenian 5th and 6th regiments took action and launched their own offensive along the center of the front line. The battle took place on flat land. In support of the 5th and 6th and placed on hillsides around the field of battle, Armenian artillery batteries and machine gun emplacements rained hell on the unsuspecting Turkish forces. Ottoman artillery fared poorly, and when their steel rain petered to a drizzle, the 5th and 6th regiments attacked Ottoman infantry and cavalry formations, inflicting appreciable losses. The Ottomans suffered spectacularly on the 22nd. Over 500 casualties were inflicted. Villages were taken back the Turkish vanguard destroyed, and the Turkish center pushed back some 15 kilometers. Major General Mavzis Silikan, commander of the 2nd Armenian Infantry Division, did well to capitalize on the victory. He released a statement the same day calling on all able-bodied Armenian men to take up arms to defend against the invaders. Further, he called on those unable to fight to support the war effort. In a show of pride and patriotism, 
Villages in the area poured food, water, and war material out of their homes and to the front lines. The Ottomans, however, did not simply bow out. On the 24th, they countered with their own offensive. It was poorly conceived and poorly executed. Like the 22nd, just two days prior, Armenian artillery and machine guns rained hell on the Ottomans and nullified their advance. Forward lines remained static, and the only result was heavy Ottoman casualties. Meanwhile, Armenia continued to play chess, utilizing their minimal manpower in the most effective way. General Silikin again shuffled his forces. The main strike force was refreshed with troops in position near the Sardarabad Araks railway station. The partisan infantry regiment was sent to the village of Sardarabad. Various detachments and volunteer units were sent to key villages and towards the Araks river. Silikin was wise in his division of available forces. All forces on the Armenian left, center, and right were capable of combined arms tactics. The scarce but critical artillery were dispersed in support of all units across the front line. Cavalry was also divided across the front lines. General Silikin again went on the offensive, and two major assaults were conducted on the 25th. The first was against Turkish forces holding a grouping of hills. The 5th Regiment and four artillery batteries attacked the hills, but met fiercely dug-in Turkish resistance. Though artillery and machine gun fire peppered the defenders, their entrenched positions provided valuable protection. Armenian infantry charging the base of the hill were quickly beaten back by the out-of-reach defenders secure in reverse slope positions. Though no ground was lost, the 5th was forced back to initial positions. Simultaneously, Armenian foot soldiers executed an attack toward the Iraq's railway station in hopes of retaking the supply line. However, Silikin had received poor intel and was unaware that the station had been reinforced with enemy troops. Both sides suffered casualties on the 25th, and the front lines remained static. The 26th was no different. Again, concurrent assaults were executed on rail stations and efforts made to push the Ottomans back to Alexandropol, though to no avail. General Silikan devised a new plan and on the 27th made progress. With rear support units, Silikan reinforced the Armenian center, which again executed an assault on the Turkish-held hills. While Armenian forces laid on the pressure with artillery and machine gun fire, two vanguard regiments executed a right-flanking movement towards the Turkish rear at about 9 a.m. The maneuver was a success, and the Turkish left was bypassed. With two Armenian forces approaching from the rear of the hills, Silikin's artillery and machine guns hammered Ottoman positions with their ordnance for a full half hour. Turkish artillery was unable to respond, and the Armenian center slammed in the front of the hills. Caught between the proverbial hammer and anvil, Turkish forces holding the hills were brilliantly defeated, and Silikin's forces took the hilltop at 2 p.m. The Armenian left had also been busy at Iraq's station, which had which was concurrently captured. The 27th was the decisive day of the Battle of Sadarabad. Turkish forces had been pushed back across their entire front. Critical railway stations were returned to Armenian possession and occupied villages liberated. Events on the 28th were of similar tone, and the Ottomans continued to fall back, suffering casualties, surrendering villages, and critical rail lines. However, Turkish forces were heavily reinforced on the 29th. Perhaps galled by their opponent's success in the last two days, or morally encouraged by the reinforcements, the Ottomans fought with great tenacity and retook some villages and some rail stations. There was much back and forth. Fighting on the 29th was brutal. In some locations, the Armenians retreated, and others, the Ottomans. The battlefield was disorganized and fractured. But while the bloodletting took place, a different event transpired. A ceasefire was signed. The battle ended not by bloodshed, but by way of diplomacy. As the Ottoman forces began a disorderly retreat, General Moses Silikyan decided this was a crucial and opportunistic time to disseminate and destroy the Ottomans at Alexandropol and Kars. He was informed shortly after negotiations between the Armenian National Council and Ottoman leadership had been ongoing in the Tiflis government. 
or present-day Tbilisi, Georgia. He was informed by Nazarbekian to seize all military operations in the region. The Armenian National Council members who made this decision were roundly criticised at the time, but the decision was made on the basis of Ottoman commanders who had received new, new reinforcements and the ammunition supplies had almost been exhausted. As a result of Armenia's complete victory at the end of the nine-day battles of Darabad, the Ottomans had been forced back 50 to 65 kilometres, and the immediate threat to Yerevan was removed. The victory was crucial in securing a successful counteroffensive in Bashaparan and the valiant struggle in, in Karakalisa, as well as in the partial defeat of the Turkish invasion of eastern Armenia. The triumph, which was won at a tremendous expense, also helped Yerevan's political, social and local authorities, as well as other influential pe- people, play a bigger role in the city. In actuality, this victory served as the cornerstone for the development of a newly independent Armenia. The Armenian nation survived due to the Ottoman setbacks at Sadarabad, Bashabran, and Karakalisia, and these wins made it possible for the Armenian National Council to proclaim the first Republic of Armenia's independence on the 30th of May. The Republic was able to hold out until the Ottomans were compelled to leave the area at the end of World War I in late 1918. Despite the harsh conditions Armenia agreed to in the Treaty of Batum, which was signed on June 4, 1918. The Ottoman Empire officially recognized Armenia as an independent nation. What's crazy is this would not be the end of Armenia's struggle. Even after being recognized as an independent nation by the Ottoman Empire, Russia moved in in the 1920s and occupied, or attempted to, Armenia again. And for a couple of years, they had to continue to fight for their independence. But yeah, so this, uh, prior to doing the research for this episode, this, this was a topic that I knew nothing about, very little about at all. And a lot of Western textbooks and a lot of Western history books, when they talk about World War I, the Caucasus campaign is definitely mentioned, but there's not a lot of detail on it. And I'm sure it's probably the same for you over in Australia, yeah? Yeah, I there was a couple of uh, sources that I looked at that focused on the Caucasus campaign, but... Um, there was very, very little mention, if at all, on the Battle of Sadarabad specifically. So it was very difficult um, in the research process, for sure. All right. Well, this concludes Hardtack Episode 17, Battle of Sadarabad, Birth of a Nation. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you learned something new, because we certainly did. Make sure to tune in next week, where Sam and I will return to Vietnam, this time for Operation Kremp, 1966 a joint operation executed by the United States, Australia, and New Zealand. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep your hardtack dry.